For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Ah, it's Heard Hell Show. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thursday, May the 19th, year of our Lord, 2022, is a busy one as we continue to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Appreciate you. However you're listening and or watching, please make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss what we're doing. And we're thrilled to have you. A lot to cover today. Uh, The siege in Mariupol over in Ukraine. That is over 80 days of fighting. The last of the fighters have left the steel plant there. We will update that tragic, horrible story, how a bustling city in 80 days has been laid waste to rubble and is now occupied by Russian forces. Also, uh, you wanted to talk about it because you've been blowing up my inbox and direct messages about it. So we're going to touch on it. The 2000 Mules documentary, so-called. We will touch on that. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza's latest attempt to convince folks that the 2020 election was stolen. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. We will touch on it, though. Anyway, uh, great story to end the program. John Williams, the great composer, you know, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Jaws, you name it. One of the great composers of all time, not just our time. What does he have to do with Andy Griffith and a charity episode about Opie learning how to be charitable? Great story. Going to enjoy bringing you that because we have a very heavy topic to cover today. Our friend Dennis Saunders uh, from Minneapolis. He's a writer. He's a commenter. He's also a pastor in that area. We're going to talk about Buffalo. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about some really heavy stuff. This is the grown folk conversations that we bring you on Herd Tell. We don't duck stuff. We ask hard questions. We get to the heart of the matter. A lot of this stuff today isn't going to be get an answer to the questions because there are no answers to these questions. It's stuff that's got to be hashed out and discussed. There's nobody I respect more and nobody I want to hear more on topics like this than Dennis Saunders. Of course, he's in Minneapolis. They've gone through more than their fair share of high-profile stories the last few years. What would he tell the people in Minneapolis? What does he say about communities trying to stitch themselves back together after tragedy? One of our absolute favorite guests, Dennis Saunders, on the program today. But first, uh, we're going to talk about people who refuse to learn their own lessons. Uh, We did some voting on Tuesday. We've already covered uh, the primaries in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and elsewhere. In fact, tomorrow's episode of Heard Tell, Joe Zemanski's going to be back, going to talk a little elections on a doubleheader. Joe Zemanski's going to be on. Bill Balkett from over in the UK, going to talk UK elections tomorrow. Let's talk about Pennsylvania for a minute. Because former President Donald Trump is has apparently decided that he took one look at the Georgia runoffs, the mistakes he made there, how winnable races became losses, and decided he wants more cowbell. Uh, let's go to hot air. Our friend Ala Pundit uh, writes, uh, there's two social media um, postings by Donald Trump here. 
and I'm going to read them. Uh, Donald Trump posting here says, Dr. Oz should declare victory. This is, of course, the Pennsylvania Senate seat that is going to be a couple days because of the way they count extra votes. There's about 30,000 votes out. It's about a 2,000 vote difference, give or take, depending on which number you believe. Dr. Oz, who's backed by Trump, should declare victory. It makes it much harder for them to cheat with the ballots that are, quote, just happened to find. The Club for Growth candidate who lost took many votes away from Oz. Also, early mail-in ballots were sent without having my endorsed yet. Despite all of this, Oz won. Those are two social media postings by Donald J. Trump. A couple just factual errors there. Uh, it's not anybody's fault that you waited to the last minute to endorse their uh, former President Trump. Oz has not won because they're not done counting the votes yet. And by the way, the Club for Growth has spent tens of millions of dollars on other candidates that you've endorsed, like Ted Budd, who won in North Carolina and others. So this is pretty hypocritical stuff all the way around. And let's get to the heart of the matter about cheating here. Ala Pundit, writing in hot air, quote, when will this country be done with this clown show? And when will Republican voters absorb that crying fraud is what Trump does reflexively whenever he is beaten? He or his proxies lose an election, irrespective of the circumstances. He did it after Ted Cruz beat him in 2016 Iowa caucuses, and he's doing it again today as his candidate, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, leads by a hair in Pennsylvania. He didn't screech about a stolen election in 2020 because the evidence of fraud was compelling. He did it because screeching about unfairness when he loses a popularity candidate is how he copes with the embarrassment of defeat, nothing more or less. The 2020 version of Stop the Steal, this is Pundit writing in hot air has a gigantic following on the right because Republicans are eager to believe that Democrats are capable of anything, including rigging a national election. The 2016 version didn't do as well because they're less eager to believe that Cruz and his constitutional conservative fan base were similarly ruthless. Constitutional conservative there is in quotation marks as it should be, but we'll hash that out some other time. Accusing Oz's opponent, Republican Dave McCormick, of potentially trying to cheat in Pennsylvania resembles 2016 more so than 2020, except this time Trump's risk alienating some of his own fans if he keeps it up. The Club for Growth candidate you mentioned, by the way, was Kathy Barnett, who was thoroughly Trumpian herself. Oz leads by less than 2,500 votes with around 30,000 still to be counted in many counties that have favored McCormick so far. There's no reason on the merits for him to declare victory. The only reason to do so is to plant a seed in the minds of those rubes that somehow the outcome is known before it truly is, so that if it ends up changing, Oz can claim he was cheated after the fact, which is precisely what Trump did when he walked out of the podium on election night 2020 and declared that he'd won the election. Whatever else one might say about him, he's a superb con artist. He knows how to plant those seeds, but if he plants them successfully this time, he risks costing his party a Senate seat, or rather, another Senate seat. Stop the steal probably cost the GOP two in the Georgia runoffs last year after Trump spent two months telling Georgia Republicans their state elections are rigged. If McCormick edges out Oz in the final tally on the strength of mail ballots, no less, and Trump starts whining about cheating, there's a chance that some Oz and Barnett voters will believe him and will boycott the general election this fall to punish McCormick, which is a gift to John Fetterman. Could even tip the majority of the next Senate to the Democrats, which again would be nothing new. For Trump, I've said it before, this is all pundit writing in hot air, that I'll be surprised if he ends up endorsing Brian Kemp's Georgia gubernatorial race. Doing so would bruise his ego too much. By this time next week, he'll have thwarted twice by Kemp, first in 2020 when Kemp refused to meddle in the state's election to help Trump in Georgia, and again when Kemp 
beats Trump's proxy candidate, David Perdue, and he's going to beat him badly, by the way, probably 20 points or more in this year's primary. That's coming up on Tuesday. Back to Alapundit, endorsing Kemp in those circumstances would be tantamount to capitulation. It's hard to imagine him doing it, even though refusing might lead to a Stacey Abrams victory. I think he'd prefer to see Abrams win than to see Kemp win. In light of his post this morning, I wonder if he'll hold the same sort of grudge against McCormick if he edges out Oz, preferring to see Democrat Fetterman win this fall. I think Trump would have supported Barnett if she would have won the primary since she's a true blue MAGA, but McCormick obviously isn't. It'll be hard for Trump to forgive him if it ends up overcoming Trump's Oz endorsement and prevailing. Now, important to know, and he goes on to mention this later in the piece, that McCormick made his own bet on this because he played plenty of footsies with Trump and Trump supporters himself, so no sympathy there. But what is really going on here? The big live wire, big question of this entire midterm is Donald Trump. He can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Cyclically and historically, Republicans should do great, but they've got to run good candidates. Pennsylvania should have been a great chance to pick up a governorship and a Senate seat. And we're starting to get really strong Georgia recall vibes out of both. Trump endorsed Mastriano, Doug Mastriano, who is utterly and completely unfit for office. A conspiracy theorist, somebody who has openly said that he wants martial law and he wants to be put in charge of it. And he also, even more annoyingly to people who actually care about voting, said he's going to disenroll every voter in the state and make them re-enroll. This man does not deserve to be anywhere near an elected office. And now he's going to be the GOP nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, which will make that race very winnable for the Democrats. Oz has all kinds of red flags, not the least of which is all his uh, charlatan ways as a quack doctor on television. He also has real national security problems, having deep, deep ties to Turkey and the dictator of Turkey, Erdogan, over there. This is not a man who should get a security clearance and sure shouldn't be in the U.S. Senate. But Trump endorsed him for whatever reason. Both of these Senate seats and the governorship in Pennsylvania should have been pickup opportunities. But the way Donald Trump is conducting himself and the way he has endorsed people put that in doubt. Once again, like in the Georgia runoffs, his meddling for his own devices, not for the party, not for the country, not for the candidates themselves, but for him, is going to put these seats in jeopardy for the GOP. And the GOP has it coming. They've tolerated this hot mess. They didn't put a stop to it. This nonsense about the elections being rigged and they're rigged if you lose is wrong. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. We've seen it lately when Democrats do it. Stacey Abram looking at you. Concede when you lose. Don't say it was rigged. And it's wrong when Donald Trump and any of the MAGA people do it now. If you think the elections were rigged, you're not fit to hold office, especially an office like a governor or secretary of state where you can directly affect those elections. I'm sorry. I'm not playing this stupid game of well, the left did this. No, if you're not going to uphold the law and you're not going to uphold elections, you have no business being in office. Don't give me the lesser of two evils garbage. You still wind up with an evil. People like Mastriano, people like Oz, who would be a security threat to the country if he was put in the U.S. Senate, have no business being in office. There's other Democrats. I'm sure we can do them at some other time. We're going to be consistent on this here on Herd Tell. If you're unfit for office, you're unfit for office period. Doesn't mean we're going to vote for you because X, Y, and Z, because X, Y, and Z doesn't make you better. Now, as for Donald Trump, what's he going to do? He's been very plain about this. This election is all about him. 
It's his vendetta ride for losing in 2020. Donald Trump is proving to us again through his actions and through his words and through the people he's endorsing that there's no issue that outrides his top issue. It's not the economy. It's not inflation. It's not overseas foreign policy. It's not gas prices. It's not abortion. It's not anything else. The only issue that appeals to Donald J. Trump is Donald J. Trump. And if you try to pursue that Republican Party and you go down that road and you make it all about Donald Trump getting retribution for 2020, you get exactly what will be coming to you at the ballot box. You're probably going to lose and lose frequently. And you'll deserve to. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, a bunch of you folks keep reaching out and asking me about it. So even though I don't really want to talk about it, we will discuss it because this is a partnership, which means when you want to talk about it, we will talk about it. So let's discuss Dinesh D'Souza's movie, 2000 Mules, which is supposed to be this expose on how the election was stolen. It wasn't, nor is any of the information in this movie proving that. In fact, they've already been caught in multiple lies as they promoted. They've been caught in a lie about a murder investigation that was supposedly solved And the people that are behind this movie, two of the executive producers who are behind the True to Vote group, can't even seem to get the building that their office at Mississippi State is located in correctly until they're pressed by people to get it right. I would go through all this, but there's no point. If you already believe this stuff, you're going to believe it. Nothing I'm going to say is going to dissuade you. If you're an honest broker of information, you can dig into this. It'll take you all of a couple of minutes to find out all the holes that's in the problem with this. There's not a single person shown on camera going to a ballot box more than once. They use what's called geolocating data, which is a group thing, and it's inaccurate. These people could be going back and forth for a multitude of reasons. Remember, these ballot drop boxes are placed in public places with high traffic with multiple people going around them for a reason. That's why they're there. Same thing with like putting a mailbox. You got to put it where the mail is. Uh, There is some minor league voter fraud that we have found. And there's been people prosecuted over voter fraud from both parties, by the way. But there's nothing on the scale that would have tipped the election. And there's nothing in this movie that shows it. But you didn't even need to know all that, even if you didn't dig into all that. All you got to know is who's behind it. Leadership matters. And the people that push something matters. And Dinesh D'Souza putting his name on top of this and promoting this tells you all you need to know. Remember, this is the guy who pled guilty to campaign finance fraud. He got pardoned by Trump, but he was still guilty of it. He got kicked out of his job as a professor for having an illicit affair and lying about it. This is not a good person. This is somebody who's trafficking in this stuff because it's the only way for him to make a living nowadays. He's not a viable source. The people that are producing this movie that are joining him in it, they're not a reliable source. And no amount of the glitterati from Trump world supporting this movie makes anything in it true. It's become a white whale to people in Trump land that this there was some kind of massive election fraud that stole the election, but there's no evidence of it. I've looked into it. If there was, I'd say so. It didn't happen. There was no widespread election fraud. Trump lost because he wore people out, didn't perform well as president, and didn't campaign very well. And then he further eroded whatever goodwill he might have had left with things like the Georgia runoff that hurt him even worse. Trump is to blame for Trump's own problems, not some massive conspiracy. He ran. He won the first time. He ran against Hillary Clinton. Now he had four years of book on him. 
and he lost to Joe Biden. Sorry, that's how it happened. You don't have to dig into 2,000 mules too deeply. Just take a look at Dinesh D'Souza's record over the last few years. You don't need all 2,000 mules. The one jackass in charge tells you all you need to know. They're not reliable. They're selling you a product. They're openly bragging about how much money they're making off of it. Ignore this nonsense. It's noise. More heard tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. One of our favorites, a man I greatly respect. I'm proud to call him a colleague at Ordinary-Times.com. We go to him in times of trouble, but he's not Mother Mary. He is Dennis Saunders, our friend up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, my friend, always great to have you on the program. Welcome back. Good to be back. Um, we always joke, every time I have you on when we pregame this, I always say, well, one of these days we'll talk when there's not some kind of mass event going on. <laughs> But yeah, unfortunately, you've been in Minneapolis the last couple of years. We all know the history there. You've been uh, disproportionately in the news for bad stuff. The thing in Buffalo, the shooting, we know the racial component now. We know quite a bit about the shooter uh, we covered on Hertel. Uh, I didn't use his name, but we read every single name of the victims, including the wounded. Before we get into the, the ugly side of this, just on a human level, because you've lived through this in Minneapolis a couple times now. Uh, you're also a pastor in that community. Just on a human level, what do you tell the people of Buffalo, that community, as they are on the very front end of this grieving process of dealing with this sort of thing? I guess you tell them that it's to, I think that you counter this situation with love and that you try to love each other and that you try to love each other across racial lines and sexual orientation and all of that, that you know, the person who came, the shooter basically was filled with a lot of hate um, for whatever reason. And I think that the best way that you can respond to that as a community is responding in some way with love and coming together, um, showing love to those around you, um, showing love to those who are, have been affected by this shooting. And I think that that's just the best answer you can do for times like this. I, I keep saying it and I'm guilty of it. And I kind of, I talked about this on social media a little bit today and I got into a conversation privately with somebody who I, I, I greatly respect who is an expert on the field of race that I go to mm. on things like this privately. And I was like, you know, 
I keep saying this and I believe it. Uh, it's not that I don't believe it, that, you know, we don't have the conversations about race that we should have in America, but I, I've kind of come to a realization a little bit of like, it's almost like an advanced course in college. We don't have the prerequisites. People haven't done the required reading. There's not a common basis of knowledge to have a productive conversation about that. Um, and you brought it up before is like, um, I think it was John McWalter said, you know, if it's one side yelling and the other side, not saying anything, that's not a conversation. Um, can you, can you expand on that just for a second? Because you're another one of those people I go to and I was like, Hey, you know, you tell me how this should go. That's where I'm at it on is like, I don't think we have a common basis. I don't think we even have the right vocabulary to discuss this. I don't think we understand our shared history and how we got here. Am I off base on any of that? No, you're not. I, I think one of the problems um, that we have really is we talk about the word conversation, but in some ways we don't really mean conversation. And I think actually, if we want to get towards uh, and moving forward in, towards racial reconciliation, we really have to have a conversation. But a conversation means that each side is probably going to hear things that they don't want to hear. And um, I think that they still have to kind of remain engaged in discussion. Um, this is an issue that is always going to bring a lot of kind of dredge up a lot of bad feelings. And to me, the only way out of this is through it. And to do that, we have to have an honest discussion. And I think, you know, the other part of that is we have to also be able to see each other really as having a shared destiny. Um, we're Americans together. Um, we may come from different walks, but at the basis, we are who we are. And I think one of the problems today is that we act as if um, the other side comes from another planet. And as long as we think that way, we don't think that there is something that grounds us together. We're really just never going to move forward. I wonder, and this is going to be a touchy area, so you stop me if I get too far afield here, but okay. I just want to, I just, I, I got to talk about this, you know, because it's just, um, we, we cover it and we write about it, but we don't talk about it. I know we need to talk about things like great replacement theory. I know we need to address the wide spectrum of prejudice, especially when the prejudice starts turning into out and out racism. I know we need to nip those things in the bud. I almost feel like, especially on social media, we get to where we start talking about things like the theory of it and the ideology of it and the history of it. And we almost use that as a skimming a rock across the pond where it's like, okay, well, we've, we've dressed that and addressed that now but it's almost like we just use that as a skimming of the layer and we don't actually get into what's going on underneath it because we can go, oh, well, it's this bad theory. And if we just got rid of all the media outlets with all the bad theories, that's going to solve this problem. And I don't think we ever address the fact that, no, this is a human heart problem. This is a broken soul problem. This is beyond legislative and this is beyond policy. That's where my frustration is starting to come with this. Is, is that off base or is that something that's shared by other folks, do you think? No, I think it is. I, you know, one of the problems I think has been that we see this as solely a political problem and it's not simply a political problem. And where we see this kind of people engaging in these activities, 
there's a lot of things going on here. Some of that is economics. Some of that is people who feel disconnected from society. And part of it is also, as you would say, a heart problem. There's this sense of kind of twisted um, ethics and, and twisted emotions. And this is really a time period where we need to see other institutions um, stepping up and, and taking a part, um, in, especially in civil society, especially the church, um, that need to be able to reach out um, and be able to kind of build bridges, especially with people who may seem like they are very much loners because there had to be, you know, with this shooter, you have to wonder, was someone paying attention to what they were, what they were looking at on online? Um, were they someone that had hurt people to talk to? It, it doesn't seem, it seems like we have the society where we don't really pay attention to one another until something like this happens. And by that time, it's, it's almost too late. Yeah, talking to our friend Dennis Saunders. Um, I thought back to some other shootings we had. The Charleston Church shooting really always bothers me because he came in and sat down. Like he was there for a while. He talked to those people. He looked. He was there for a Bible study. Yeah, like, like, you know, you know the the brokenness to be able to sit there. Like it's one thing to go in and just see people as targets. I I know that's dehumanizing, but I can kind of get my head around that but like somebody to do something like that. And then you have this individual who by his own admission, if we take the words that he wrote down um, as fact, and I have no reason to discount them, he took the last two years and purposefully stewed and marinated himself in this hatred stuff. I know everybody wants to go, we need to do something. So this never happens again. I don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that. Because if you've got somebody that just wants to silo themselves off from the world like that, and then they eat up all that hate, and then they make a plan like this, and I know there was the mental health flags that that came down, and we can talk about that in a minute, but as far as the the radicalization part of this, where his prejudice turned to outright hatred, which turned into racism, which turned into murderous intent, I I just don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that, and and. Is it? It's like it's taboo for us to say. There's not a lot we can do about that, but that's what it feels like. Is that? Do you feel differently? I mean, I don't know how you solve that problem. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that I, that I don't think that there is one simple solution. I mean, obviously, whenever things like this happen, there are people who say, you know, if we just had better gun laws, this would go away, and. I'm not opposed to that, but I don't know if that would be the thing. And, you know, I, I think part of it also is that as, as a society, we're not good at dealing with the problem of evil. Um, and I don't want to go as far as to say that some people are just plain evil, but there are people that engage in evil acts and, And we need to kind of of deal with that. There is this thing out there, and sometimes it is not so easily solved. There's no way, you know, it's not always a public policy issue. I don't know if I would go as far as to say that there's nothing we can do, but, but when you're dealing with something like this, I think it's hard. I think it's very difficult to find something to do. 
I'll, I'll ask this question as a philosophical question because I kind of know the answer, but I think we need to address it. Why is it that when people, you know, if you don't want to go so far as to say people are evil or inherently evil, although I, I believe they can be, let's just say they embrace evil or they've made a decision to be evil. Why does that always seem to manifest with things like race right off the bat? That seems to always be the, the bottom of the spiral when people go down that road. Why, why is that? Because it's easy to deal with the other. It's easy to try to make the other the bad person, whether that's a, um, someone who's black, whether it's someone who's gay. That's kind of what it is all about, is that there's something going on with them. They may feel somehow deficient in some way or things are not going well in their life and pushing it off towards someone who is different from them is the easiest way to kind of assay, assage your hurt feelings. So I think that's what it's all about. We talk about it all the time on our show. You know, human nature is undefeated. And unfortunately, that's usually in a bad connotation that human nature is undefeated. However, uh, when we were going through the list of the victims here, I was struck by a couple of things. This is a very tight knit neighborhood. It is a, you know, lower, lower middle class and below neighborhood. They talked about this uh, particular grocery store being, you know, kind of the only grocery store in kind of a food desert. I was struck when they listed the names. Every single one of them uh, went to such and such church. Uh, the one uh, lady, the one of the younger people killed was 32 years old. She was there helping her brother during a bone marrow transplant, just happened to be there for, the, you know, stories like this. We know about the security guard now. Um, again, because you went through this in many, Minneapolis and St. Paul and that area, all the different things that have gone on. Talk about when the news cameras stop, you know, in three months, two months, whenever it is, and the cameras leave. What's the work that has to go into a community to start trying to put it back together after one of these major news events? Because you've lived through that two or three times now in the last few years, unfortunately. Talk about that because that's when the real healing and work of, okay, what's our community after this? That's when that work really starts, isn't it? It is. I think some of it's going to have to be um, mental health care professionals that are going to have to be on hand. Um, part of it is probably doing a lot of honest talk about race because obviously this is not a surprise that it's still a problem. And, you know, the, the nature of this crime where someone literally traveled, was it two or three hours to go to do this? Um, that's a deep well of hatred. And so we have to kind of talk about that. And I think that that has to still happen. Um, I think other communities, communities around that area, um, have to keep checking in, doing whatever, creating relationships maybe with, the, with churches in that area. Um, because the people who were, lived in those neighborhoods, um, obviously the, the victim, the family of victims, but also people who are um, just living in that community who may have known them or, or, or however, are all gonna need help for months, if not years. Um, down the road. And I, I think the one thing that really does concern me, and this might seem weird, is, um, and you just talked about it, is what's going to happen to that supermarket? Um, because a lot of the areas where African Americans live, 
tend to be food deserts. Um, you know, one of the things that happened here in Minneapolis um, is we had a few um, grocery stores that were um, torched in, in different communities and that did leave literally a food desert um, for a certain amount of time. Uh, one of the um, stores, um, as they were remodeling uh, two of their locations that had been damaged, they um, had buses that would take them to another of their locations nearby. Um, and they also made a, a, a deliberate um, intent to stay in those communities. Um, that's kind of a question I have is I hope that this supermarket chain will, will make a commitment to stay and um, continue to serve that community. Yeah. Tops is uh, they, we went through the list of the local communities and charities. You can go back on the show notes from Tuesday's show. Uh, we have a links there, uh, charity stuff in that community, directly into that community. It's one of the things Tops said they were running shuttle buses to other, because obviously it's still a crime scene, so they couldn't open it if they yeah. want to. Uh, they were running shuttle buses to other places from there because I think they said something like 80% of the customers there walk there, which is not mm. uncommon in neighborhoods like that. Yeah, so it's a it's great not. point that you raised. Uh, Dennis Saunders joining us. This is a grown folk talk. It's a tough talk, but that's why we bring Dennis on because we can ask these hard questions and try to hash them out. We're going to take a quick break, come back. We'll continue to talk about Buffalo. Also talk about some writing that he did before the Buffalo thing happened uh, based off his you know, why aren't our po politics going towards the big tents? Why are they getting more defined? We know there's money involved and power involved in that, but there's real world consequences of that. Is this one of them? We'll talk about that more with our friend Dennis Saunders on Hertel right after this. I heard tell show I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Dennis Saunders joining us. Uh, had to take a quick break while I went on a rant about other things that aren't fit for air, but that's how we do things. Uh, this is what he does. He listens to me rant, and then he gives me good, wise counsel. You get to share in that today. Uh, to put a bow on the Buffalo uh, massacre before we move on to a few other things, how does it land with you? Because I think part of the problem with situations like this is we have the ability now to have our own select media. We have our own information rotations. We have our own little siphons that we filter information into. This is a big, diverse country. Um, I'm not a black man. You are. I imagine this hits differently for you. I know because you've been in a community like Minneapolis that it definitely hits different because of what y'all been through the last few years. So just tell me so that the audience can hear it and I can hear it. When this happens, what was your reaction to it once we found out what was actually happening here? Well, my first thought was, crap, um, this is happening. And, um, you know, when I was uh, um, growing up, my, my dad, who grew up in um, Jim Crow, Louisiana, would always kind of be concerned because um, I, Growing up in the 80s in Michigan, I had a lot of friends and um, went to a Catholic high school. And of course, a lot of the friends were white and um, also had a lot of female um, white friends. And so, you know, we would go out and back in those days, you just kind of, I wasn't thinking about anything dangerous and all that, but he was always concerned. And 
I think he was always worried because, of course, he grew up in a time when, you know, obviously people were lynched because they smiled at a white woman. And um, I think that that is the thing that sometimes you live with is, you know, are you at this event or doing this? And could that put you in, um, in danger? Um, those kind of things still exist. And I don't want to make it sound like everything or right you know, to be African-American, it's always to, to live in fear. That's not the case. But there are those situations where you have to wonder. And I think especially now, it just seems like we are even more um, divided and there seems to be more um, issues that are trying to, and people that are trying to kind of push kind of racial resentment um, that I think could lead to more events like this. Um, I don't necessarily want to say there's a direct link between the, that, but it's in the air. And my, my fear is that we're going to see other events like this in the future. You've been writing and talking about this. Dennis Saunders joining us. Uh, he's my colleague at Ordinary-Times.com. Has several wonderful podcasts. He does a lot of good stuff. Make sure you're following him and seeking all of those out. Um, it's not directly analogous because this is obviously the, the very worst of the extreme. But you've been talking about how politics has ceased to try to even pretend like they're going to be a big tent. That's, mm -hmm. that's another one of those terms like bipartisanship that's just gotten abused to the point that it doesn't mean anything. But just real quick to kind of give us some kind of a positive out of this, you know, pretty heavy conversation. What do you mean by a big tent and why is that so important? Because if you're not doing big tents, that's when you start fragmenting. That's when you start uh, balkanizing the electorate, one person said, which, you know, used to sound like an extreme, but now it's kind of starting to look like it might fit. Uh, just talk about that big tent for just a second and how important it is to get some kind of diversity and inclusion of some type, no matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on. Yeah, I, the concept of a big tent is this belief that there are organizations, whether it's political parties or other groups, where there are people who come from different backgrounds. They, they may all be under one tent. This could be a political party, but they may have slightly different opinions on different things. They may think that you know, one person may think that it's okay to raise taxes, another person may not. Um, there, there are different people based on even different parts of the country where they come from and how they have to um, deal with things. And so there's a lot of sense of diversity. It's not necessarily always diversity uh, in race or, or gender, though it should be, um, but it's also in, in opinions and in how we think and all of that. And so I think years ago, I think both of our political parties were places that were big tents. You know, you had conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats. You had conservative Republicans and liberal Republicans. And you had all of these groups together. And there, in some ways, was always kind of a, of a implicit understanding that you know, this candidate who is a Republican from Pennsylvania is gonna act and, and maybe vote on some things different than a Republican from Arizona. 
um, you know, a Democrat from North Carolina may not vote the same way as a Democrat down in Illinois. And so there was this sense that people were different and that we had to find ways to um, come together. And especially, I think, to kind of meet in some middle where, where people could kind of make um, pragmatic choices and can, and can be kind of part of this greater whole, um, even if they don't necessarily fit the prevailing, um, maybe the majority thought in the culture. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to get back to that, but at some point, you know, there's a little bit of pendulum theory to life. I, I think it's going to come back at some point where you're, they're just going to have to, because the, the margins are just going to get too squeezed. I think uh, Dennis Saunders, our very good friend, uh, we always have to talk the heavy stuff with him, but that's why we need his wisdom and guidance. I always appreciate you, my friend. Let folks know what you got going on because you got a couple different podcasts that you're working on now. You do great writing. Uh, we want to make sure folks can find your stuff and your social media. Just run those things down real quick because you got a couple of really good things. You do some stuff on church stuff for folks that want to do that. You mm -hmm. also do some other stuff like your series that you did on Kmart and Sears, which was just fantastic stuff. Uh, let folks know everything you got going on, my friend. Okay, well, um, first is um, En Route, which is the podcast that I do um, that focuses on religion and um, modern life, public policy. And you can uh, find that at enroutepodcast, all one word, uh, dot org. Um, the other thing is you can find articles that I've written on Medium, um, and that can be found at uh, Dennis Sanders, all one word, dot uh, medium dot com. And then finally, uh, I've been doing something called um, Church in Maine, which is a Substack letter. Um, and hopefully I will be doing a little bit more writing specifically on kind of where religion and public policy are working. Um, one of the articles I'm hoping to get out this week is one about um, kind of the changing views of Southern Baptists when it came to um, the issue of abortion. Um, and especially kind of where they are right now um, and how far that is from where they were 50 years ago um, when it comes to abortion. So, and then one final thing is you talked about another church podcast is that I am doing one that is called Preparing for Sunday. And um, I'm someone that uh, it's basically a podcast where we look at a verse that's coming up um, Sunday and just basically ask some questions. And so that's kind of all the things that I'm doing right now. Oh, that's it. That's all you're getting done. Yeah. yeah. Slacker. No, you're a hardworking <laughs> dude. We appreciate you. Uh, always appreciate the time. Always appreciate your opinions, my friend, Dennis Saunders, Denman, you'll see his, his uh, handle there on the graphic. If you're watching on YouTube and we will link to all those podcasts in the show notes. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Always appreciate you. You're welcome. We'll see you soon. Thank you, sir. Tell a quick update on a story we've been covering. Uh, Mariupol in Russia, the 80-day siege is over, at least for now. Uh, they have gotten the last of the Ukrainian troops 
out of that steel factory. Over a thousand of them have been captured by Russian forces. God help them from here, what might happen to them going forward. But the resistance at the steel factory has ended uh, after 80 days, 80 days in which a thriving port city has been laid waste. Um, the Russians do have it. How much of a victory or a pathetic victory this might be for the Russians, we won't know for some time. Uh, there's a lot of fighting in the Donbass region. That's very different than the defensive campaign that the Ukrainians have been so ably mounting. They're out in the open a little bit more. Russia has more of an advantage in that scenario. Just some updates on what's going on in Ukraine. This war is far, far from over. It's going to be a very long war, especially in the Donbass, because remember, they've been fighting in the Donbass regions since 2014. So this isn't new. This is just a new front on it. But Mariupol has fallen. Uh, those troops have been captured. Some civilians did get evacuated. But anyway, at least this one battle that was very high profile for now is over. A couple of weeks ago, I was on uh, with some folks and they asked me how long could they hold out? I said not long. They went another two weeks after that. That just shows the courage and determination of those troops. But it is now over. God help them in Russian captivity. And we'll continue to follow the story as best we can. More Hurt Tale right after this. Hertel Show, Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for coming back with us. Okay, our uplifting segment. I love this story. Cutches on a couple different things. Uh, in one of, this is from metv.com, by the way. In one of the best loved episodes of the Andy Griffith Show, Opie, that's director Ron Howard, for those of you not old enough to remember, he got his start as a child star in Mayberry. Opie learns to be more generous when Andy sets him straight after only donating three cents to his school charity. Watch closely in Opie's charity. And you'll recognize the charity organizer, Annabelle Silby, is played by Lauren Tuttle. Now, who could be seen the same year playing the sheriff's wife in Psycho, the famous horror movie? While Tuttle may not be a name that many people remember today, as well as icons like Lucille Ball from the 20s to the 40s, she was dubbed the first lady of radio because she was by far the most popular woman on the airwaves. It's said that no one in the history of radio achieved that level of fame during the height of her radio career. Tuttle averaged 15 shows weekly. My God, I do this one hour daily, and it's about all I can handle. This woman is a beast. With critics declaring by the end of the 40s that she was, quote, the finest radio dramatic actress. I can think of nothing more enjoyable than continuing series of half-hour dramas with Loran Turtle as the star, one critic wrote in the Valley Times in 1948. Then, when TV dramas started looking for talent, naturally, Tuttle was a popular choice among casting directors due to her reputation in radio, and she was already one of the most famous women in America. By the time she appeared on The Andy Griffith Show, she had moved on from radio to become one of the hardest-working actors in Hollywood. At times, I felt like I was caught in a squirrel cage, Tuttle said. She didn't exactly know what she was getting into when she started radio acting, but once people became aware of her immense talent, there was no stopping the constant demands and ongoing roles being offered. It was a tough adjustment from radio, but Tuttle was game. Radio was so much easier than any other media total, told the Hartford Courant in 1961. We didn't have to go home or memorize lines. Luckily for Turtle, Tuttle, who started acting when she was six years old, she did get a short break when she married actor Mel Ruick and had a daughter, Barbara, in 1920, temporarily retiring. Demand would bring her out of retirement, though, and Tuttle had to juggle being a mom while being a top actor. Once Barbara grew up, she got bit by the acting bug, too, even appearing with her mom in the 1953 movie The Affairs of Dobie Gillis. 
the pretty young starlet eventually got married, started a family, and became an actor in her own right, and her mom, Lorraine, couldn't have been prouder. Tuttle's daughter must have been used to be part of the family, very busy family, when she chose for her husband, one of the busiest composers in Hollywood. And this is where this story gets cool. John Williams. In 1950, Williams got his start composing for TV and movies, leading him to score hit shows like Wagon Train and Lost in Space in the 60s before his best-known movie soundtrack work in the 70s on movies like Jaws and Star Wars. Once Williams married Tuttle's daughter, Barbara, their home was just as busy as both the radio star and the composer's schedule stayed. In 2018, the Los Angeles Times reported Williams' home was a constant jam session and that the only thing more important to him than music at the time was his love of Barbara. It was tragic for both Tuttle and Williams when Barbara suddenly died from a brain aneurysm at age 41, discovered in her hotel while filming a new movie. Williams said the prior night she had complained of a headache. Williams eventually remarried, and Tuttle outlived her daughter by more than a decade, passing away in 1986 after performing hundreds and hundreds of roles right up to the end in 1985. One of her radio co-stars, Howard Duff, summed up what made Lorraine Tuttle such a go-to character actor through different media through the ages. I think she just never met a part she didn't like. She just loved to work. She loved to act. She was a woman who was born to do what she was doing and loved every minute of it. So next time you hear that iconic Star Wars score, the new Jurassic Park movie, the original Jurassic Park score, that's John Williams too. He is probably the greatest composer of our lifetimes. Just remember, there's an Andy Griffith episode about charity that kind of started the whole thing with his familiar ties. I love stories like this, something nice and light with a very heavy topic today to end on. That'll do it for Hertel. Hope you're enjoying it. Let us know. Reach out, hertelshow at gmail.com, hertelshow on the Twitter. All of our guests and my social media are in the lower third graphics. If you are watching on the YouTube channel, please subscribe and share us, whether it's YouTube or any of the podcasting platforms, we'd sure appreciate it. So till we talk to you again tomorrow for more Hertel, we're going to finish this week out good and strong. Uh, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.